Welcome to our first uh, Grace Bible Hour. You should have uh, a handout uh, for tonight's uh, teaching. Um, I, it's an abbreviated version. I've got like 14 pages of notes. I'm not going to get through all of it. Don't worry. But about 14 pages to, uh, to unpack on you. And as you can see, if you look at your handout, uh, we're going to hit this in basically three parts tonight, just an, inter an overall introduction to the study of what we're doing in this historic Route 66 study. Also an introduction to the Old Testament and then uh, an introduction into the Torah or the Law of Moses, okay? So we'll try to accomplish all that tonight. Uh, everybody good? Alyssa, are you, are you disrupting class again? Uh, I don't believe it. I actually... <laughs> all right. Well, if we have to separate the two of you, we will. I want to, uh, as we get started, I just want to acknowledge right up front uh, that we are indebted here to a number of my Old Testament uh, seminary professors um, to, at the Master's Seminary, and particularly these men, Dr. Keith Essex, who teaches at the, or taught at the Master's Seminary. I think he may be retiring pretty soon, but uh, he's, he did, uh, ran a lot of the biblical survey courses. Also, Dr. Mike Grisanti, who taught me introductory Hebrew. Dr. William Barrick, who taught Hebrew exegesis and, and Old Testament introduction. These men invested a lot into me and all of us at the Master's Seminary. And it's, it's by using what they've taught, some of their syllabi, the material content that I've been able to, uh, to develop and prepare some of this. So we're, we're gleaning, um, you know, as you have to understand, we are gleaning uh, from years of scholarly research, uh, discipline study from very godly men. Um, and, you know, even in the organization of the material and everything I'm trying to give you, um, this is not originating with me. This is originating with better people uh, who are experts in the field. So just want to um, just want to make sure and say that up front because you need to understand that we, this is the case with every church and every age, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of good men who've come before us um, and we're significantly helped here uh, with all their work. So as I said, we're going to conduct this um, <clears throat> tonight's uh, introduction in three parts, introducing the study itself, introducing the Old Testament as a whole, which I'm going to be very brief on. You can see in your outline, I've given you just a little space to write there. Uh, but then we'll try to unpack a little bit more as we get into the Torah. Um, who, who here has gone through a course on biblical survey in the past? Can I just see a show of hands? Get them up there. One, two, three, four, five, six... Okay, seven. so good. All right, so a number of you have been through some level of biblical survey. Did you find it helpful? Did you find it not so helpful? What did you find helpful? Let's hear some of that. What did you find helpful? You who have taken it, I'm assuming. Yeah, go ahead and wait. When, you, when you're reading in any individual book, sometimes it's easy to lose track of the bigger picture of kind of what came before and what God's setting up in the future. So just that wider context. <clears throat> Good. Big picture look, not getting lost in the weeds. Uh, sometimes you talk about people who miss the forest through the trees. They get so detailed that uh, they lose their way. And, uh, you know, if my wife uh, could uh, tell you about my early teaching uh, as a Bible teacher, I was one of those who lost my way <laughs> through, uh, 
through too much detail. I know that comes as a shock to many of you. <laughs> but believe me, it could be worse. <laughs> she's lived through it. Uh, she's got the battle wounds. You're so, over that? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's called recovery. It's you're always in recovery. You know, I go to support groups and everything. There's a 12-step. Actually, it's a 12-step program, but there are a lot of sub-points. You know? <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, so, uh, sub-points and sub-points of sub-points. So, uh, yeah, so who, who else has been through a biblical survey? Helpful, not helpful? What did you find helpful? Um, anybody? Doug and then Gary. Mine was actually in a, in a secular university, but it was interesting. <laughs> Mine really focused on the, I don't know, the cultures around the Bible at the times, which was kind of interesting. Very interesting. Helped me really put a lot of it in context, and that was kind of cool. It does. Yeah, yeah it, uh, sometimes growing up in Sunday school with flannel graph and everything, it just right. seems like a bunch of coloring book stories. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't really seem real until you realize, whoa, this is real history. Yeah. They're real people. Yeah. There's archaeology digging stuff out of the a earth. Lot and of the archaeology that is coming right. And, and, uh, and, you know, I don't know, the stuff from Mesopotamia and all that, epic and all that kind of stuff. Right. Stuff that you had to read that was outside the Bible. Well yeah, the extra biblical literature right. just kind of gives you a, a kind of a peek into the milieu and, and yeah. uh, what was going on yeah. in, in different parts of the world. Yeah, how people thought. Mm. Um, yeah, amazing. And and there's so there's so many times that uh, liberal critics have have tried to you know poke fun at the Bible for being you know a little little too too much to believe and, and like like writing wasn't even invented until and then you go and then all of a sudden uh, they find you know grocery lists on little pieces of pottery from way before the Bible times and and they're like oh <laughs> you don't ever come <laughs> the, the guy that taught it was was good about saying this you know uh, scholars say this but really that's ridiculous and, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah this, you know the the whole idea that Moses didn't write the Torah. And, right, right. And, you know, it was written by several different people. And he says, really, it's just as easy to interpret it that one man wrote it and, you know, brought it. Yeah, and, uh, good. A lot, a lot easier to interpret that way than that several others. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear how even-handed he was. You yeah, know, that's he was not even-handed. That's, uh, that's not common. He was actually on the committee that uh, translated the New American Standard Bible. Well, that probably explains it. Yeah, he was pretty well-grounded. Yeah, good. Gary. Yeah, the whole thing I'm hearing is context. And, you know, when we know the New Testament, we basically know one generation. And that's about how maybe, maybe one and a half or two generations. But when you look at the Old Testament, dozens of generations, you know, 25 or 30 generations, and you just see the whole span of God's persistent hand over his people. Good. His yeah, so kind of back to what Wayne was saying, just yeah. about that big picture to kind of just see see the Bible in a, in, a, in a larger context, a larger perspective. And, and uh, as we've talked, to, you know, in various contexts, we've talked about Bible interpretation, how important context is to interpretation. You really do need, you can't just go to a, your Vines dictionary and look up a word meaning and make it mean that in everywhere it shows up because then you'll be destroying, um, you know, just uh, the, the whole idea of a semantic range of a word that, it really does depend on the context, what kind of a flavor that word is going to have. So uh, we do that in English. Same kind of thing. Um, I was up and I was down. Am I talking about my emotional state? Am I talking about my grades? 
Am I talking about my ride on a roller coaster? I mean, you know, it really does matter what kind of context I'm talking about. So, same thing with this. Um, any other comments? Yeah, Josh. Not only does it keep you from misinterpreting stuff, but it also you find in so many places, like even verses that were important to you before, just become even greater and, and more amazing than you thought they were the first time. Good. So, so even even um, giving you an appreciation of the context, the big picture some of these, uh, some of the historical background and things like that in a survey, but also just that, I, I love what you're saying because it really does connect to a devotional element. That it, this really is about worship. This really is, a, when you know and understand God's word, you appreciate him, you appreciate what he's done, you appreciate what he's given us in the scripture. It really is about worshiping the Lord and, and this, this devotion uh, to him and to his word. Um, that just deepens over time and over study. So, thanks you guys. Um, who, who could tell me really what a, what do we mean by biblical survey? What are we talking about? What's a, what's a biblical survey? What's a survey of anything? An overview. Overview. Yeah, overview yeah. hitting the high Good. points. Overview, hitting the high points. So, that said, if it's an overview, hitting the high points, does that mean that I'm going to interpret for you in Genesis 6, 1 to 5, who the sons of God are? No. 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 Not tonight. Well, you <laughs> I won't. But next, <laughs> next week, I don't, I don't see... Is, oh, it's you, Mark. Oh, next week, Mark is up. And you can hit him with that question. You, you can read through. He's going to cover 1 through 11, right? And Michael Edwards is going to cover 12 through 50. So you guys go through 1 through 11 this next time, and you jot down every perplexing problem that you can find. And you pitch it to... to because he's prepared for everything. He told me that. He said, I don't think they can stump me. I don't think they, I don't think they got what it takes. That's what he said. So, yeah, so prove him wrong. Anyway, so basically a, a Bible survey, as we start going through a survey of this, we're just going to give you the key elements of, of the book. And, and uh, you know, if we ask, what are the key elements? We're looking at things like basic facts of the book, like the author, the date, um, the background, the setting. Uh, we're looking at, let's see, where am I? Yeah, key elements right there, A, one in your outline, key elements. So we're looking at basic facts, we're looking at themes and purposes. Um, a theme is something that's a repeated uh, phrase or term or repeated person, place, event, ideas. Those reveal the themes of the book, uh, and those themes are going to be impo important as we start to try to piece together what is the purpose of the book. And purpose of the book, we're going to ask the question, why was this book written? That's a very important question to ask. It's actually a very important question to ask on any passage of Scripture. As you come in to try to interpret and understand a certain chunk of Scripture, a paragraph, say, why is this here? What is the purpose of this paragraph? You could even ask a, a negative question. What would be missing if this paragraph weren't here? That helps you sometimes really get to the purpose of why the paragraph's there. Same, with the th same thing with the entire book. What would be missing if we didn't have this book of scripture? 
Okay, so purpose. We're also in um, a biblical survey. We're going to be looking at things like structure and organization of a book. You're, you're like, yawn, boring. No, it's actually quite, um, quite revealing. It's, it's very interesting to look at the structure of, of books. You're talking about an outline. An outline is so helpful to know where you are in the flow and where you're going next. It's very helpful. We're going to be looking at, uh, you know, in, in the survey, key facts like key people, key dates, key places, key events, chapters, doctrines, all of that. And then every, every time we do a, um, a portion of survey on a given, any given week, we're also going to be talking about issues of interpretation and theology, like what I brought up, who, what is the identity of the sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 to 5? Very interesting uh, question. Um, are they fallen angels that are materializing as men? Are they fallen angels that are inhabiting fallen, fallen men? Are they uh, the godly line of Seth? I mean, they're, that's a totally opposite. They're not fallen angels at all. They're actually a godly line. So Mark is going to go through all the details of the Hebrew. Um, he's been studying. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, what's the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, 16? Oh, and what is the 666 we're talking about in Revelation 13, 18? Uh, baptisms for the dead in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. I, just you could go all through the scripture and see that there are interpretive issues in every single book of the Bible. Uh, and you want to, as you're studying through, you want to kind of identify those things so you, you know where the minefield is, you know, so you would know, um, you know what's there. As you um, get the key elements of each book in kind of an overview fashion, uh, that's what the biblical survey is going to provide. It'll also help you uh, to get a better grasp on the storyline of the Bible. What is the biblical storyline? I want to give you just a couple of things. You can write some of this down if you want to. But um, the storyline of the Bible, is just, just thinking in terms of time frame, first of all. The Old Testament, uh, as, a, as a, a unit, going from in our Bibles, Genesis to Malachi, 39 books. It was written over about a, a thousand year period before the coming of Christ. It's written, the whole Old Testament is written to point to the coming Christ. Uh, he's someone who was promised in Genesis 3.15. So right in the very beginning of, of the story. Um, and then he's prophesied and pointed to all the way through the Old Testament. So the Old Testament anticipates a part two. It, it's not a complete revelation on its own. It anticipates more. It anticipates the coming of Christ. Um, so you, as you go through and look at the Old Testament prophecies, uh, read the prophets about the person and the work of the Messiah. It's, this is a person who is going to be the king of Israel. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to forgive sins. Um, but the Old Testament in and of itself is a book that's not realized. It's not completed until the coming of this person, the Messiah, okay? The New Testament, we understand, it looks backward um, to what God did when the Messiah came. So the event of the Messiah, um, that was a, an earth-shaking event when he came. Uh, we're obviously studying through his coming and his ministry, life and ministry in Luke on Sunday mornings. Um, New Testament written over, if we compare it or contrast it to the Old Testament, written over a very short period of time, 
um, you know, less than 100 years. Started with Galatians in AD 49 or 50, or maybe even Matthew in AD 50, and ended with Revelation, which was around AD 95. Uh, that's a pretty short time frame there of Revelation, but it was completed before the end of the first century. So this entire, um, as we think about the Bible as a whole, the entire period of inscripturation, God giving his revealed word, men through holy men, writing it down, 2 Peter 1, um, covers about 1,500 years of time. It's completed, it's done. There's about 1,000 years, like I said, from Moses to Malachi, 400 years of silence, and then Christ comes, 100 years um, from the birth of Christ to his final revelation in, Revel in the book of Revelation, okay? That's just the time frame. Here's the basic storyline. Right at the beginning, you see where everything originates. You see where everything comes from. You see the creation. Uh, you see the fall. So you know, you know where we come from. You know how it all happened. And you know what went wrong. I mean, there's, there's something to understanding why we look at the world the way it is. And you see things broken. You see things falling apart. And everybody who's born wants to know, where did I come from? How did I get here? What is the meaning of all this? What's the purpose of all this? Why is everything so messed up? Why, um, whether it's, why are my parents tearing each other apart? Why are my friends doing this? Why, are, why is society so corrupt? Why, and on and on it goes. So the Bible answers that question. And it answers that question right in the very beginning book, The Creation of the Fall. You also see, uh, right after that, you see the judgment and the Noahic flood, that wiped out the entire world, okay? Save eight people and two of every kind of animal, seven of every kind of clean animal, but two of every, every kind of animal at least. Uh, but that, that judgment, worldwide flood, wiped out the entire earth. And that, again, answers a lot of questions. If you were raised just to, just to see the Bible and you walk out and you look at the rocks in the Rocky Mountains, you see striations, you see what looks like layers of sediment on top of layers of sediment. It looks like water laid this down. You see canyons cut through layers of sediment. You see fossils up at high altitudes, and you wonder, how did that get there? The Bible explains all that. Then you see in Genesis, so right after what Mark covers, you're going to see it in Genesis 12 and on through the Old Testament, you're going to see a focus on one family, which becomes one nation. Okay, so we see the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you see the history of Israel, uh, and really the rest of the Old Testament covers the history of Israel. It's all a focus on Israel. So, history of Israel starts with uh, exile, and I'm, when I say history of Israel, and I use the term Israel, I'm referring to the nation here. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God. Uh, he had 12 sons, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, you have the exile in Egypt that lasted about 430 years. Exodus in the wilderness wanderings is next. So they leave Egypt, they wander through the wilderness that lasts 40 years. They enter into Canaan and have a conquest of Canaan, the promised land that's what we call now Palestine that lasted for seven years. After that, and the tribes uh, took their places and positions and, and received their inheritance, uh, was the period of the judges. God ruled the nation through the means of human, 
what they call judges, 350 years of that time frame. Uh, at the end of that, things, you know, judges begins and ends with this phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so it makes the case for we need a king to rule over us. There was a, God gave them a king, King Saul, followed by King David and Solomon. And those three kings are the brief period called the United Kingdom of Israel that lasted 110 years. After the United Kingdom, Solomon's son Rehoboam was kind of a, a knucklehead and um, divided the kingdom. And God prophesied that um, a slave, a servant named Jeroboam, he took 10 tribes up north and Rehoboam stayed down south. And uh, <clears throat> that, that divided kingdom lasted another 350 years. Those are all the kings of Israel and Judah. And you can see that in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You can see all that listed out there. Um, the prophets came. They kept saying, hey, remember the law. Remember the law that God gave. Obey the law. Obey the law. If you're not obedient to the law, God is going to judge you. He is going to curse you. And eventually they became more specific and said, God is going to remove you from the land. He's going to cast you out. That happened first with the Assyrians coming in uh, with Sennacherib and taking away the, the northern tribes, and then with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon coming in to take away the, the uh, southern tribes. That exile in Babylon is another period of Old Testament history which lasts about 70 years. That, precisely 70 years, I keep saying about. But after... Uh, after that 70 years was completed, which was prophesied of that, <clears throat> that period was prophesied, they returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. That all takes place in Ezra and Nehemiah. That, that whole time of return and rebuilding lasts another 140 years. So all that takes us up to, um, from the time of Moses' return, all the way up till um, this rebuilding uh, and that intertestamental period, that's a total of 1,497 years, about 1,500 years, okay? Then you have the history of Christ, which is where the New Testament breaks in after 400 years of silence and gives Christ their prophetic silence, no revelation coming from God, the sky, God is not speaking anymore, he's not sending his prophets anymore, 400 years, and then boom, massive revelatory activity as Jesus comes. And uh, so you have the history of Christ in the Gospels. You have the, his the origin and the early history of Christ's church in the book of Acts. Then you have everything flowing out of that doctrinally, which is what the rest of the New Testament is. And Paul's letters, the general epistles. And then you have the last things, the book of the apocalypse, the revelation. That's the storyline of the Bible. Going from start to finish, <clears throat> that's the Bible in a nutshell. So I want to stop real quick and ask, are there any questions about that that I can answer before I move on? Don't laugh, Josh. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, I could ask all kinds of questions. <laughs> Covering the entire sweep of, of biblical history. Is it warm in here to anybody else? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm starting to fall asleep myself. Um, could, you, could you crank up that AC for us? I'll, I'll Oh, he's going to bump it up. Whoa. Electronic. Ooh, he's got tech. Whoa. Yeah, as long as you make it cool. <laughs> <clears throat> so coming back to just, I, I want to encourage you as we go through this study, 
Um, I just want to encourage you about some of the benefits of this. We've talked about a couple of them already about encouraging deeper study and getting the big picture. I'm going to say more about that in just a second. But I want to, I want to start with, with this benefit <clears throat> of taking a course like we're doing in Bible survey, surveying every book of the Bible, walking through from start to finish. Um, and that's this benefit, that this Bible survey, along with other study and reading you're doing, but the benefits of a Bible survey is that it makes the Bible accessible to you as a Christian, as an individual Christian. It makes the Bible accessible. You, you understand that Martin Luther and what the early reformers did back in those days in the um, you know, late 15th, early 16th century, what, the, what they did is they took, they took the Bible out of the hands of the scholars where it was trapped in the Latin language where nobody understood it except the studied individuals of the society. They took it from them and they translated it into the vernacular. So that means they translated it into German, and into um, French, and into um, Dutch, and the different languages of Europe. And they gave, you know, English. We get our English Bible from uh, what William Tyndale accomplished for us and, and Wycliffe. So these, these men provided the Bible to us, made it accessible, made it attainable, reachable, so that we could read for ourselves what it said there, so that we could look at our churches, we could look at our families, we could look at everything we see and assess it and say, is this what the Bible teaches or not? Um, am I lining up under the authority that I should, or is this a wrong use of authority? Um, are they commanding my conscience in this matter, rightly or wrongly? Uh, frankly, is this truly the gospel? Is this the way to salvation, or is it some other way? Well, now everybody has in their hands a copy of God's word or access to a copy of God's word. In our day, secular modernism has been working steadily, dripping like a faucet, to undo what the reformers sought to do, what they fought to do, what they bled and died to do. Our secular society, our world, our modernism that we all benefit from with lights and cell phones and technology that gives us air conditioning and refrigeration and everything else, that same, all that same technology and modernism, that spirit of modernism that gives us all the benefits also has a lot of drawbacks, most particularly in taking away the accessibility of the Bible. And it didn't do it by going into all of our homes grabbing the Bible and running away with it. Didn't do it by burning Bibles, didn't do it by um, outlawing Bibles, it didn't do it by, um, you know, making us all, you know, pushing a button, making us all illiterate all of a sudden. Uh, what it did is it started to attack the Bible from a number of angles. One of them is attacking the inspiration of the Bible. When you, when you say that the Bible is not God-breathed, then it's basically just a bunch of people just a bunch of fallen men who probably made mistakes. When you start to undermine people's confidence in the Bible being the inerrant, God-breathed word, now you're dealing with issues of authority. You're dividing people's allegiance and loyalty to one single authority, which is God, and you're saying, well, basically it's anyone's guess. You're the authority. 
you can basically listen to whatever voice you want to. So that started to chip away at the Bible's authority by chipping away at the inspiration of the Bible. Modernism also seek, sought to um, undermine the sufficiency of the scripture, saying that the Bible is absolutely sufficient for all things. We can answer every single question. Are you going to be able to find your favorite recipes in the Bible? No. Okay, are you going to be able to find a, a manual on how to do brain surgery? No, because it wasn't written for that purpose, but for the purposes for which the Bible was written. That is that you, it's sufficient for everything contributing to our life and godliness, contributing to our salvation, contributing how to run our families, how to parent our children, how to do marriage, how to do, how to do fi our finances, how to, how to run principles of everything in life that affect everything in life. Yes, it's absolutely sufficient. And it speaks to all those things. If you question, does it really speak to this? I would encourage you to study the scripture thoroughly and see, does it speak to that? Because it probably does, if not in precept, in principle. So keep studying. But there, there are a number of ways that people came in to say, no, the Bible isn't sufficient. Um, especially came in through the uh, time of the Renaissance. Where, where man's uh, potential, his, his rational uh, achievements and everything became much more superior in people's thinking to the Bible. Um, you know, that you, had, you can go back to uh, psychology or sociology and all those different soft sciences and see that they started to undermine confidence in the Bible saying God really is not and there really is no such thing as sin and devils, all that's so, so passe. It's so part of the pre-modern, unenlightened world, and we know better. And so all those theories that came from sociology and psychology and all that stuff started to come into the church and undermine people's confidence, not just in the inspiration and authority of the Bible, but in, in its sufficiency to say, you know what? I think for this problem, I really need an expert from outside of the Bible. I need someone else. The Bible doesn't answer everything. That's another way that modernism has undermined uh, our confidence in the scripture and made the scripture more and more remote. Third way that the Bible has become uh, increasingly inaccessible to regular people like us is through the perspicuity of scripture. Attacks on the perspicuity of scripture, that's just a fancy way of, of saying the clarity of scripture. Um, you... Uh, so the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of scripture, people started to lose um, confidence that they could actually see what's written here clearly. That the Bible was actually, could be interpreted, could be understood. Um, and part of, part of what uh, contributed to that, this is just one piece of that puzzle uh, that I wanna focus on. We are, especially in our generations here that are represented in this room, we are predisposed from our upbringing and from the evolutionary milieu in which we live to think of time in terms of vastness. We're, we're, we tend to think in terms of the vastness of time and space so that ultimately nothing is really that, in, that accessible to us. I mean, it's, we live in this vast universe and we're just like little pinpricks. How could we possibly know anything that's out there? Same thing with time. When we're talking in terms of millions and billions and billions of years, we tend to think of like, wow, everything is so remote, so far away. 
And if anybody is going to speak with any authority on issues of time or space or anything else in our universe, it's got to be a bona fide expert. It's got to be someone who has expertise in astrophysics or geology or astronomy or whatever. That's the only person I'll listen to. But the astrophysician, he cannot speak to issues of biology or geology. And the geologist, he can't speak to things over here. So everything's fractured. We become, we become distrustful of anything. When you realize, as you come into biblical survey, that the time frames we're talking about here are much, much smaller than what our culture would have us believe. We're talking in terms of a few thousand years rather than millions and billions of years. When you feel that you're living in a universe that is billions of years old, you feel so detached. When you understand, though, that what you have in your hands, it covers real history over 1,500 years, and the beginning was only a thousand or so years before that. Well, now everything's much more accessible. Everything's much more within reach. You feel like you can get your mind around this. You can get your arms around it. And the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture becomes alive to you because you have confidence that it's actually accessible. It's actually reachable. So biblical survey is very important for us living today um, so we can get the Bible back into the hands of the people. <laughs> we can put ourselves under the Bible's influence so that the Spirit can once again affirm to us in our generation the inspiration, the absolute sufficiency, the total sufficiency, and the absolute perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. It really is God's 66 love letters to us as Christians. And he wants us to understand them. He wants us to know them. He wants to treat them as absolutely sufficient and useful. He wants us to live our lives by them. They're there for, here for our blessing. So I hope that helps motivate you to take this really seriously. And I don't see our whole church in here, which is bugging me. So we need to get everybody in here and crowd this place out so that we have to go in the worship center, drive up that air conditioning bill, only for a few months, though, because it's going to get cold. <laughs> but um, we need to get everybody in here because they need to hear this. Okay, so benefits of Bible study, making the Bible accessible. Also, as I'm saying here, it encourages deeper study. Um, this helps us to get the big picture, as everybody's saying, by, get this, by getting this 30,000-foot uh, view. Uh, you're able to see the forest of the trees. It's like um, when you're going into a, a, a book of the Bible to do some reading or study, um, you have the opportunity through Bible survey to do reconnaissance first, kind of to get a lay of the land and s see where you need to concentrate your efforts, uh, see the problems and the issues that come up, and try to get a, basically a survey before you run in and rush in and start studying. Also helps you in, in your study of any book of scripture to set a study goal. Um, when you know where you're going in your study, you know what you're aiming at. That helps you develop a study plan. You can break down a book uh, into its constituent parts, especially big books. If you break it down into bite-sized chunks, you can tackle the study of those things much more easily than just taking it all in and saying, oh, Isaiah, 66 chapters, no way. Oh, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. There's, there's two parts in Isaiah, and if you start to break it down even further, you see the part after part, and you say, oh, I can do this. You can. You can do it. So, how can you get the most 
out of this course of study. I'm talking about this Route 66 study. Okay, I'm gonna give you some tips on how to make this most useful to you. Number one, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles, okay? Keep up with class reading, and I'm gonna give you the first assignment. It's Genesis 1 through 11. I think, I, I really do think it's attainable to read those chapters before Mark comes in here next Wednesday. So read Genesis 1 through 11. The following week, I'm gonna give you a tip. It's gonna be Genesis 2, 12 through 50. And you can, you, you say, boy, that's so huge. No, it's actually just stories of several people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's actually quite easy, just four people. So, no, really, if you take it and just read one person per day or something, you've got it covered, you got it lit. read that whole section <laughs> Easy, Josh. You're stepping on somebody's idol, man. Okay, so the Broncos are actually opening the season tomorrow, right? So just get through tomorrow. One more day to slack off. Then Friday, get into it, okay? Friday. But after that, it's the Lord's Day. They're playing on the Lord's Day. So you deal with your own conscience on that. All right. So, number one, how to get the most out of this study, out of this Route 66 study, read your Bible, okay? Keep up with the class reading, just read, um, and you are going to enjoy it, because you're going to, well, I'll say this, number two, write this down, meditate on Scripture, meditate on Scripture. The uh, cultural conception of meditation is to empty your mind, that is not the biblical idea. People in the Bible who empty their minds are called fools, Okay? <laughs> So we do not empty our minds. We keep them sharp, focused, thoughtful, meditating, chewing on scripture. The, uh, the, the word picture for meditation is like chewing the cud. It's what a cow does. You know, he just continues to regurgitate that food and keep on chewing it and then swallow it, regurgitate, swallow it. Do that same thing with scripture. And you'll see as you read prayerfully, thoughtfully, meditatively, you'll see how much comes to your understanding just by doing that, okay? So read scripture, number two, meditate on scripture. And I would say while you're doing this, take notes, write, write down comments, thoughts, questions, just in a notebook. Um, we're gonna give you every single week an outline that looks like kind of similar to the one I gave you, just a one page deal. But that gives you space to jot some notes down, but also a whole back page blank so that you can write everything you want to on the back. But I would recommend getting yourself like a spiral notebook or a three ring notebook or bringing in whatever electronic device if you want to type some notes on. Um, take notes and have a place where you're filing all this for your own future reference, okay? So while you're reading your Bible, meditating on the Bible, prayerfully reading, thoughtfully reading, take notes, write down questions, okay? Third thing, that'll help you to, third, number three, be prepared for class. I feel like Gary Brotherton here. Be prepared for class. Um, and that means just show up having done this stuff. Show up having read your Bible, a section. When, you, when I say be prepared for class, I also mean interact in class. Bring in your comments. Bring in your questions. These, these guys that are teaching, all the different elders and stuff, guys, they, they need your feedback. They need your interaction uh, to encourage them in the work Okay, it's, it's work to teach, it's right June, it's work to teach, it's exhausting, but encourage them by interacting with them. Don't just sit there and stare at them like a deer in the headlights, you know, and just say, 
come on, impress me there, college boy. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't have an attitude, chip on your shoulder. Come in and be encouraging. So be prepared, ask questions, but contrary to what I encourage you to do with Mark, don't play stump the professor, okay? It's easy to stump the professor. Um, eventually you'll do it. Don't, don't play that. Just, just play to our strengths and, and, and ask questions that are really useful for the entire class, um, and we will um, we'll have a great time together, okay? So read your Bible, meditate on Scripture, be prepared for class. And then just a couple other things here for, for those of you who want to go just a bit further. Read about your Bible. Um, there are some really good books about the Bible um, that will aid you uh, in reading the Bible. And I have some of these written. I'm just going to read them very quickly. And I have these written down. If you want to come up and get um, this material, I can, can give it to you. Some books on the Bible as a whole. There's a two-volume commentary that came out of Dallas Seminary called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Very good. Very faithful. Um, uh, Frank Gabeline. Uh, wrote the Expositor's Bible Commentary. That's 12 volumes. It's a little pricier, but you can always find deals on that. So the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Another one I really love, and I think you would love to, it's called, it's, uh, called Through the Bible by J. Vernon McGee. You've, if you've ever heard him on the radio, he is awesome, faithful, but it's not way over your head. It's five volumes. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's 50 bucks on Amazon, I believe, or I think you can even find some of it posted for free. Um, what was his name? J. Vernon McGee. He's, uh, he actually pastored in L.A., uh, Los Angeles, for many, many years. Had a very faithful, thriving ministry, and he had a radio program that has been translated into languages all over the world. It is a great ministry, and he has, but he came from the deep south. So he's there in L.A. going, friends, the children of Israel, they, they were disobedient to the Lord. You know, that's J. Vernon McGee, and you'll love it. Thank you. Thanks, man. I worked on that one. Matthew Henry is a one-volume commentary. Matthew Henry's concise commentary on the whole Bible. Single volume, it's 12 bucks at Amazon. Hard, hard cover. He is a faithful Puritan commentator. Awesome stuff. You can also find that for free online. Matthew Henry, if you just Google Matthew Henry, you'll find it. But you can get it at Amazon, 12 bucks, or free online. There are places that post that commentary online for free. For the arc, I picked up a couple commentaries. I think Matthew Henry's was two bucks. Oh, there you go. You talk to Gary Odie. So that's just some stuff to help you to go a little bit further. And, um, and as, you, as you read and that stuff starts to permeate your mind and your thinking, uh, you're going to say, man, this is not enough. I want more. Come and talk to me. Um, and we will get you going. Because then you'll want to study your Bible. Now we're talking about big words like exegesis and uh, fancy stuff like that. And in time, I'm going to, I'm going to teach here as, as it makes sense. We get through this study and everything. We'll, we'll, we'll go through um, issues of hermeneutics. We'll go through issues of, of Bible interpretation, of biblical uh, approach to this interpretation of scripture called the grammatical historical method. Uh, you know, the rules of grammar, the facts of history, all the stuff Doug was talking about with regard to the context of the scripture in which it was written. It just helps you so much to understand uh, the Bible you hold in your hands and how to interpret, interpret passages. Gary. What do you think about uh, Wearsby's commentaries? Um, I, I, I don't know him really well. Phil Johnson, that was actually his pastor for a number of years, and uh, loves him. 
Um, I think, you know, I think there's like that B series, be a diligent, be this. I would say he's probably very faithful. I, I found in the reading that I've done, but I don't think I'm very well exposed to Warren Wiersbe, but I, uh, I found it very faithful, but brief. So, um, and maybe that's what you're after. So talk to Gary if you'd like to learn more about Warren Wiersbe and that commentary. I haven't read it. So, okay. So that is just a short introduction to the study itself, okay? The, the Route 66 study. Any, any questions so far on any of that? Okay, good. Everybody is either so lost that you can't ask a question, or you're so well informed that everything makes perfect sense. I'm gonna choose to believe the latter. <laughs> Okay, so introduction to the Old Testament. Um, this is really short, thus the small space on your outline, okay? At the, um, just giving you the basic divisions. Um, turn in your Bible to Luke. I feel like this is Sunday morning, Luke. But I'm going, taking you to Luke 24, all the way to the end of Luke, which will, I'm sure will be there by next fall. You guys want to put money on it? You might need to step two on your 12 step program. I say three years. All right, so. Reminds me of like Princess Bride. Skip to the end. No, you missed too much good stuff. At the end of Luke's gospel, you remember the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He um, encountered two doubting disciples, remember, on, their, on, their, on the way to Emmaus, on the Emmaus Road. And he was encouraging them, after listening to them and hearing their perplexity and their, their sadness, he was encouraging them to believe that the Messiah's death is all according to plan, okay? And so he told them in Luke 24, verse 44, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you, imagine that. They, they don't recognize him yet. They're so, they're so grief bound, they can't even recognize who he is. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I'd love to preach that right now, but I can't. But notice the three divisions of the Old Testament he gives there. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He, he basically grouped the Old Testament into three sections that were recognized, well recognized in his day, and he calls it the Psalms, but it's actually, that is kind of the, the word that he used to refer to the writings. So you've got the law, the prophets, and the writings. That was a well-established grouping of Old Testament scripture by 200 BC. Um, the law is what we're going to get into here in just a bit and what, what uh, the next five or six weeks will cover. That's, that's uh, the writings of Moses. It's the foundation, uh, the, the doctrinal, the philosophical, the, even the scientific, you could say, foundation for their thinking. It is what sets and establishes a framework, foundation for an entire worldview. We cannot, we cannot sacrifice Genesis, and especially what Mark's going to cover in Genesis 1 through 11. The literal interpretation of that section is so vital for a biblical worldview. So the law is the foundation. The writings are the med meditations on the law. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. <clears throat> the prophets 
are the pressing home of the implications and the applications of the law. So you notice how the law starts with everything. The writings reflect on the law and, and uh, poetically, uh, wisdom literature, all that is reflecting on the law. The prophets, they also are based on the law, but they're calling people back to faithfulness to the law. So that's what the prophet's job was, is to say, you people are out of line, and you need to go back and remember the law and do what's written there, what you agreed to do when you said at Mount Sinai, all that God has spoken, we will do. Yeah, remember that? You need to do that. Because if you don't, God's going to curse you. If you obey it, though, God will bless you. That's the prophets right there. Okay? The, um, so, so all that to say, you cannot understand um, the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament, um, without understanding the prophets and their ministry. That, that is such a vital portion of Scripture to understand the prophets. The Old Testament is not just a, a history of Israel. It is the foundation of the entire Bible. It teaches us how to think about God. It teaches us how to think about what's excellent, what's beautiful. Uh, it puts beauty before our eyes in the writings, but it also puts the issues of duty and faithfulness and obedience before us as well in the writings of the prophets. Okay? The law. So we're going to get into a little bit further tonight. The law is the Torah, the Pentateuch. Um, it's one literary unit that includes five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? The prophets. You've got the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. That's the former prophets. The latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then what was called in the Hebrew Bible, the 12. The 12. Not the 12 apostles, but the 12 prophets. We call them the minor prophets, but it was one book in the Hebrew tradition. Raise your hand if you'd like to try this. Um, but I've got $5, a crisp, folded up $5 bill. For the per first person who can recite the 12 without error, who'd like to try it? Now, Here's the caveat. If you make a mistake, you owe me $5. Okay? You want to try? I see a water guy. Okay, next time I do this, I know to make a qualification. You can't sing it, That's for you, my friend. Take your wife somewhere special with that. <laughs> Sonic, you can buy both of you a really good right. tasty drink at Sonic. <laughs> well done, but cheating. No, I'm just kidding. That wasn't cheating. That's exactly what that song's for, right? I, I haven't forgotten that since I was seven years old. That is awesome. What a testament to, to the teaching that kids get, which is, again, back to our Awana program, what's going on in student ministries, so vital. Yeah, Mary. What is the age group in You know what? They'll make an exception for you. If you, if you. They actually have, you can actually do all those studies. Adults can. And they have uh, CDs to learn all those things in song, There's a whole bunch of scriptures, yeah. and, uh, all the books from Genesis to Revelation. I need that. Yeah. I know, I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> Please don't become discouraged just yet. 
<laughs> we will get you. Doug, Doug, you, Rebecca. We were, we were helping with, with Sparky's for many, many years, and Doug would teach the kids. And, and Amanda was in Sparky's, and she learned all her verses by song, so did Hannah and Natalie. But when we were at Summit, um, they have Bible quizzing. And Amanda actually sang one of the verses. And the judges <laughs> said, wow, not right. But we've never heard she it song before. She, she, missed, she said but instead of four. Um, and that's not right. But they said we've never heard it in song before. So and yet they cool. put out those CDs. Yeah. Cool. She should have gotten extra points for that. Yeah. She should have, but they don't do that. Um, <laughs> Well, listen. On, in all in all sin in all sincerity, though, it, maybe the two of you could connect some of the folks who would like some of that access. It really is helpful, and you can kind of just sing it, sing it while you're driving or walking around the house or whatever. It really is useful. And that I'll, I'll be on and just let you know a little secret. Part of serving in children's ministry, serving in Awana, is is for your own benefit. When you sit there and listen to verses being recited. There's nothing, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, teaching your family, you guys listen, teaching your family is all about reinforcing what you've read and kind of prepared so you can help them. But you know, what you give away, you keep. So just keep in mind that when you're involved in teaching your, your family, your kids, you're teaching your grandkids, you're teaching yourself, you're strengthening yourself. So there is nothing to be ashamed of with saying, look, I need those CDs, do it. Oh, I didn't even think about that. So yes, go get it. We can get it at our mission. I want one. <laughs> well, there you go. So Eric and Carrie Simons, if you'd like to pass the buck. Oh, what are you doing with the five bucks? I was just asking Doug if we could go double or nothing from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> 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 I'm out of money. <laughs> you, know, you know where the money is, right? <laughs> All right, so, um, okay, so, yeah, we, we're uh, back on track. Law, prophets, former prophets, latter prophets, former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, okay? Then the writings, you can subdivide this into three, five, and three. Three, five, and three. Three, uh, the first three, the middle five, the last three. The first three are the Psalms, Job, and Proverbs. Uh, we would say Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. That's how it shows up in our Bible, but in the Hebrew thinking, Psalms, Job, and Proverbs. The middle five, you've got the Song of Solomon, you've got Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And the last three, you've got Daniel, and get this, Ezra and Nehemiah are together. That's the return from exile, so Ezra and Nehemiah. So you've got Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Chronicles. Those are the last three of the writings. Now, further reading on, on all of this and the old, you know, the old Testament as a whole, Kyle and Delich commentaries on the Old Testament, it's a pretty big series, 10 volumes, but it's, but it's pretty good, okay, if you've, if you've got the money to invest. Um, John Calvin, um, Calvin's commentary is also very helpful. He is a, he is a dear, devoted lover of the Lord. And you can see his devotion to, to God and his word flowing through every page of his commentaries. You can probably, I think you can find Calvin's commentaries even online for free as well. So take a look at that. Um, I'm going to give you some books on the Pentateuch as well. Let me whet your appetite to per, per, pursue them here. Let's get into the Torah. I realize that was a very, very brief introduction on the entire Bible, um, but 
you'll forget everything I say on that anyway if I try to dig into that in, in great, great detail. We'll get, um, we'll have other times at different portions uh, between the Pentateuch and say like the former prophets uh, where I step in and have kind of like an overview as well. So we'll, we'll do the same thing, okay? Introduction to the Torah. Um, the, the word Torah, uh, the Jewish word Torah, Hebrew word Torah means, means it could mean direction, it could mean instruction, but we just know it as law, okay? So law, but think in terms of instruction. We tend to think in law, law in terms of our criminal code, our civil and criminal code is having you know, penalties associated. It does have that in there, but really it's a form of instruction. So think of the law as instruction. Think of it as direction for life. That's how the, that's how the Jewish mind would have thought of Torah. The, uh, the Greek word is the word Pentateuch, that's the, as you hear Torah and you hear Pentateuch, same thing. Pentateuch is literally comes from the word penta, five, and then um, tukas, which is a volume, or you could just say five books, five scrolls is what the Pentateuch is. We divide, as we've come in from, um, you know, years, uh, centuries of Christianity, we kind of come back into the Pentateuch and we divide it into... Uh, three aspects, moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects. The moral aspects being a revelation of God and his character. The civil being, you know, how to conduct yourself in society. And then the ceremonial aspects having to do with how to approach God in worship. Okay, so that's how we think of it. But it was originally written and delivered as, an, as a single unit. All five books, clearly different books, but they were all given as a single unit, like a five-volume set. And it was essentially uh, the constitution of the nation of Israel. I've called this before. It's kind of like it was society in a box. You understand Israel came out of Egypt and they were a slave people. They didn't have, um, you know, your highfalutin philosophers and all that. They, did, they, weren't, they weren't there kind of coming up with their own, um, you know, laws and rules and worldview and all that. They didn't, they, they knew what they were taught from their upbringing but they were, they were worshiping foreign gods in Egypt. We see evidence of that in Exodus 32 as they're dancing around a golden calf. Where'd they get calf worship? Comes from the lands around them. You know, it came from Egypt. Um, a number of those judgments that you see coming on Egypt and the plagues were all judging Egypt's gods. That wasn't just for Egypt's sake. That was for Israel's sake. So that Israel could see God has power over all of Egypt's gods. There is nothing that can stand in the way of our God. We need to trust him, okay? So when Israel came to Mount Sinai and God delivered the law to Moses, um, it, it was basically an entire constitution, an entire framework of thinking. It was to connect them back to the very beginning, to know where they came from, to know, again, where they, where they came from, where they're going, what was messed up in the world, how it was gonna be fixed, uh, they learned all of that from God's law. And it's a law unlike any other nation had. I mean, you can find um, Code of Hammurabi. You can find different law codes in the, in the ancient world. None of them compare to what God's law uh, that he gave to Israel. None of them compare. So you see um, they are theocentric in their thinking. You see God at the center of the framework of all of their life and all their decisions. Uh, he is the... He is the ultimate reason for everything. Why should I treat my neighbor that way? Oh, because God is gracious. 
Why should I forgive him? Oh, because God forgave you. Why should, uh, why should I uh, be concerned about the safety of my neighbor as he comes over to my house and build a parapet around my roof so he doesn't fall off? Why should I care? Because God cares about your safety. Um, why should I be kind to the sojourner who comes into Israel who's not um, an Israelite but is actually a foreigner outside of our... Why should I be kind to him? Oh, because God was kind to you as you were a sojourner in Egypt. So everything goes back to God, God, God. He's at the center and the foundation of absolutely everything. No other nation had a law so great as what Israel received. And they received, um, as I said, a moral code. They received a civil code to know about crime and punishment, uh, how much was too much, uh, what was just the right amount, eye for an eye and all that. That's a restriction, a merciful restriction on punishment that it can't go farther uh, than the crime done to you. Uh, there, was, there, were, there were commands about, um, uh, about um, restitution uh, in, in certain crimes. There were issues of capital punishment. All of that was there. Ceremonial also all mixed in. So, um, so as Israel received it, they didn't say, oh, here's the moral part, and here's the civil part, and here's the ceremonial part. They just thought, here's the part. <laughs> here's the whole. Here's everything about my life. Here's everything that has to do with my society. Here's, here's how I live life as God's people. Um, very instructive. So the, um, as you go through scripture, you can see, you can write this down if you want to, Joshua 8, verses 30 to 35. That um, Joshua 8, verses 30 to 35, it really confirms this early authorship of Moses. And, and the fact that this, this law, these five books, had integrity as a single work. As the tribes of Israel got up one, set, one group of tribes on Mount Ebal, another on Mount Gerizim. And they, they recited the law back and forth and the, the, uh, the blessings and the curses back and forth to each other. Um, Moses' writings throughout scripture. I'm not going to give you all these verses. If you're really that curious, I'll come up here afterwards. But um, various ways of referring to Moses' writings. Sometimes it's just called the law. Sometimes it's called the book of the law. There's the book of the law of Moses. There's the book of Moses. There's the law of Moses. There's the law of the Lord, the law of God, the book of the law of God, and the book of the law of the Lord. Okay? Got that down? Good. Let's move on. Go to Genesis 1.1. And let's just do a little bit of, little bit of Bible reading. Someone, someone in your best preacher voice, read out Genesis 1, 1, and 2. In the beginning. Good. Let's hear a southern accent. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Can't do that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Okay, good. And then God said in verse 3, let there be light, there was light, and then we move on. So we're starting here in the very beginning. I'm not going to go through this and, and kind of exposit this right now, but there is so much information in that single verse. In Genesis 1.1. And if we add verses 2 and 3, man, it's just, it is a, a world of knowledge and understanding and wisdom contained in just that first opening line. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. 
The first words, and, and really the Hebrew Bible actually just calls this book in the beginning. This is called beginning. So it says, in the beginning God created. This implies the eternality of God. He is there before any of this began, before any matter was created. Um, he entered in and says, matter be. He's the one who created matter, and he's the one who set it in motion. Matter in motion is how we are able to have such things as time. You measure matter in motion, the point that it takes to get from here to here, and you have time. Time did not exist before matter was in motion. So you see God creating matter, motion, time, energy, everything is there. Um, you see God in the very beginning as he, he gives structure to the earth, and then he fills the structure. So there's organization and structure, thoughtfulness, uh, intentionality, a plan, a purpose. You see the filling of it, the provision. You see all that filling out in the first chapters of Genesis. Um, so God is the one who created all this. And again, not millions and billions of years ago, thousands, just thousands. The whole book of Genesis spans about 300 years of time. Um, as you go through, starting with Abraham, ending with the death of Joseph. Um, well, I should say the whole, that whole section there, starting with Abraham, going to Joseph, spans 300 years of time. Um, but if you go back before the flood, you've got all those long-living patriarchs like Methuselah. Uh, you have a song about Methuselah? No. It's a very long song. Don't sing it. Um, go to, now flip over to Gen or, uh, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1 and verse 1. And let's get someone to read Exodus 1.1. 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each of his family, each with his family. Good. Yeah, so names of the sons of Israel came to Egypt with Jacob. Here's the names, and it gives you the tribes, the, the names of the, the, really the patriarchs, these uh, patriarchs and the heads of the families of Israel. So this, coming into Exodus, you, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph going into Egypt. That's where Genesis ends. You get into Exodus, now we're re-engaging the story again with, with Israel, Abraham's family, now known as Israel, and they're in the heart of the superpower, Egypt. Another 300 years have gone by. Israel is suffering in slavery in Egypt. And then Exodus tells the story of their miraculous departure and the birth of this nation. Uh, as I told you, it, it happens right there at Sinai when God gives them, boom, society in a box, the law. Now go to Leviticus 1, 1 and 2. Need someone to read those two verses. Leviticus 1, 1 and 2. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him in the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. Thank you. So this, starting out here, Leviticus 1, 1 and 2, it basically tells you the whole theme of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is, you know, the Lord called Moses. That refers to Moses being summoned by God to the tabernacle where he's prescribed the ceremonial law. This book is about a month of time where they're before Sinai, and it's known as the Holiness Code. Because this is the instruction to the new nation 
about how they can approach God, get this, approach him safely. You remember when we were going, some of you who've been through the uh, Holiness of God series, which we have one more, by the way. Um, and you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10? What happened? What's that? Zapped. Um, barbecued, yeah. you're going to say, uh, from heaven. They offered strange fire before the Lord, and God gave strange fire from heaven, and he just burned them up. It was, it was to set in their minds this issue that God is very serious, and approaching God is a very serious matter. You don't make it up as you go along. You don't get innovative and inventive in approaching God. You look and see what his word reveals, how he wants to be approached, and you approach him that way. If you go back to Adam and Eve, their children, Cain and Abel, God required a sacrifice one day, he required an offering. Cain brought what he wanted to. He brought the pride of his crops, his ground, his work and efforts. He brought them before the Lord. God was not happy with that. Abel slaughtered an animal from the flock, brought what God required. A sacrifice, something that cost him, something that um, present or, or represented and symbolized uh, the atonement that had to be made. That's what he brought. God instructed that. Cain brought what he wanted, did what he wanted. Folks, that's the way many churches are run today. Do whatever you want. Make it up as you go along. Do what feels good. Entertain the people. Make them happy. That should not be our first priority. It shouldn't, be any, shouldn't enter into our thinking at all. And if every now and again, like every month or two, God zapped one of us, we'd take this, uh, hey, wait, let's go back to that Bible and see what it says. You know, it'd be like, um, you know, as, as uh, R.C. Sproul was talking about Uzzah, remember, they're, they're transferring the Ark of the Covenant back in an ox cart. Uzzah should know better. He's of the sons of Korah. He should know how to trans, transfer the Ark or he's a Kohathite, I mean, he's, and he should know about transferring the ark. He touched the ark. They should have been carrying it on poles. You can bet after that happened that David went back and said, where, uh, what, where did we go wrong? Oh, let's put it on the pole. And they did. They carried it from there on. Folks, we can't, we can't just approach God any old way we want to. This is not a come as you are kind of a thing. This is a come as God prescribes kind of a thing. Here in the New Testament time, we do have some latitude there, and God is he's so gracious, isn't he? But we do need to be careful. Here in the book of Leviticus, prescribes all that they need to know about approaching God in sacrifice. You will treat me as holy. That's the holiness code. Turn now quickly to Numbers chapter 1. And I need a reader, Numbers 1, 1 and 2. Read it out loudly so we can pick it up on the mic. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. Okay, so there's, there's where you can see taking a census, getting the numbers, numbering Israel. That's where the book gets its name. But this, this book is really covers a 40-year period of wilderness wanderings. It is a fascinating book to read. You're going to absolutely love reading numbers. Um, because it, it takes, 
people right up to the edge of the promised land where the people disbelieve God, disobey, and God says, okay, why don't you wait 40 years? We're going to kill off the entire disbelieving, unfaithful generation, and your children are going to enter. Your children that you were worried about, um, very concerned, oh, how are we going to make it in front of the giants? How are we going to make it in front of the Philistines? How are we going to make it in front of Goliath and all these people? Uh, God says, okay, you're worried about your children? Hey, so am I, but you're not going to take them in. I'm going to take them in. So Numbers takes, takes them all the way through those wilderness wanderings, watching God's faithfulness, watching what he does to preserve his people, and then takes them right up to the door in the plains of Moab. And that's where Deuteronomy enters in. So go to Deuteronomy, and I'll read this portion here. It's a little bit longer. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is a restatement, basically, of the original law, which is why it's called Deuteronomy. Uh, Deutero, meaning second, and namos, referring to law. These are the words, chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, uh, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizahab. You got the picture, you know, where it's oriented now? Thanks, good, good. <laughs> Me too. Um, and just in case you don't have it clear, it says in verse 2, it's 11 days journey from Horeb, by the way, of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Does that help you? Get you right in the, in the ballpark anyway. So in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in, the com in commandment to them. After... He had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth and Edri, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, that is, before they got into the promised land, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. Go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all the neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland, in the Negev, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, which is in the north, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's going to the east over toward modern-day Iraq and Iran. See, verse 8, I have set the land before you. Go in, take possession of the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So this is before they go in, actually set foot in and cross the Jordan and enter in. <laughs> Moses comes back and he says, now, I want to remind you of the law that God gave. Because remember all your dead parents? They didn't obey this, okay? I want you to obey this as you go in because you need to be faithful to this. If you're faithful, God will bless you. If you obey it, God will pour blessing out on you that you cannot even contain if you're not faithful, God will curse you. He'll bring difficulty. He'll bring trial and travail. And why? To bring you to repentance. If you don't repent, well, he's going to bring more travail and difficulty and pain and suffering. And all to lead you to repentance. If you don't repent, well, he's going to pour it on even more. Until finally, if you don't repent, he's going to expel you from the land. All that is actually promised, prophesied. In fact, even assumed in Deuteronomy that the people will eventually would disobey God and be expelled from the land. So it's amazing. Moses, in this sense, he, he is the first and the quintessential prophet 
of all prophets. Every single prophet that follows and points back to the law, they're doing what Moses did right here. Okay? So we have got four minutes. And I am not going to get, I'm on page seven of 14. And I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to crank up the speed and the volume. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. <clears throat> the, um, just the significance of the Torah, these first five books really quickly. The, the Torah provides a foundation for spiritual life, spiritual thinking. It provides worldview. Um, it, it answers every single fundamental question of purpose, significance, meaning. You find people in our day, they have no idea why they are, where they're heading. They have no idea what makes sense, wh whether up is down or right is wrong or black is white. They have no idea. And they're trying to make it up as they go along, thinking that that's freedom. It's actually bondage and slavery. They are suffering. God enters in and says, here, clarity, truth, reality. He says, build your life on this. That's what the Torah provides for an entire nation, for an entire uh, people of God, really. That's why we need to study it. It's also, as we find out from the New Testament, find out from what Jesus told those disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, you can read that section and realize um, what I'm about to tell you. It was a tutor to lead people to Christ. The, uh, the law was instructive to point people to coming Christ, a coming prophet like me, Moses said, look for that. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says the same thing. So significance of this law, it cannot be overstated. It's all about foundations, origins, worldview significance, and it's all about pointing people to eventually to Christ, which is their full and final salvation. Um, very, very important. Major themes really quickly in the, in the Torah, in the law, the theme of God, the theme of his covenant, sin, sovereign election of God. See the theme of the exodus and the physical land. Uh, you see the emphasis on these five men, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. You see the theme of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. You see the theme of the seed, the theme of separation. Not just, I'm not talking about separation from God, but how God basically organized, how he separated light from darkness, uh, day from night, Abraham from his people, Israel from the nations. He separated the holy from the common, the sacred from the profane, um, clean from the unclean, unclean, all that to illustrate the nature and the character of God, that he is a discriminating God. He makes distinctions and he separates between things, people uh, that he discriminates in, Okay. Why is it here? A um, <clears throat> number of purposes that I think we'll have to save until another time. And uh, we'll just kind of punt the rest of this, okay? Any, uh, any final questions that can be asked in 30 seconds? John? Yeah, you talked about purposes and what was God's purpose for creation? To glorify himself. And uh, ultimately also to give uh, a love gift of a redeemed people to his son. So that's a great question. It's an ultimate question. Explains, it also explains sin didn't take God by surprise. 
it really, it really surprises and even sometimes troubles people to think that sin was actually part of the plan all along. It wasn't about the original creation. It wasn't about Adam. Like, what if Adam could have just obeyed? Couldn't we all just live happily ever after on, a, on, on the earth? No, because it wasn't ever about Adam. Adam was, a, was the first Adam. There's a last Adam who's Christ. And he's the one that we're supposed to finally look to and be unified with his, his union in Christ. All that couldn't have happened without redemption. And redemption couldn't have happened without a fall. God decreed... God decreed it all. What'd you say? Yeah, that's maybe what Satan would like to say. Yeah, no, I'm, but, I'm <laughs> just teasing. Um, but yeah, but it's true. It was, it was a fall that was necessary so that we would not be brought back to the level of Adam, but brought back to the level of Christ, which we had never seen before until he was revealed. So thank you for asking that question, John, because it's, it is a very crucial, foundational, fundamental question of the purpose of all of this why we exist. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this introduction, this um, into your plan of redemption, a book that reveals you, your purposes, your mind, your character from start to finish. We're so grateful for who you are. We're actually completely humbled too um, as we stand before this book, which it rises before us like, uh, like, a, like a range of mountains. Um, and we, we wonder how we'll ever get through it. But we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to do this survey, taking one book at a time, uh, breaking it down into bite-sized chunks uh, so we can take it one step at a time and further inform our study of you, your great purposes, and your great character. We're so thankful for our salvation in Christ, and we're grateful that you have created us for the very purpose of glorifying yourself revealing who you are, what you're like, and to give us a redeemed humanity to your Son and to see the Son then give us back to you. It's such a beautiful picture of love and a beautiful, um, uh, just a beautiful reflection that we are created in your image for your glory, for your purposes. From you, to you, through you are all things. We give praise and honor to you in the name of Jesus Christ. 